0: Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened By the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. Let's pray. Father, as we approach this text again, I pray that it would yield as we. Every week try to hit our minds up against the rock that is your word, help it transform us, help us not come to this text with our own ideas. And it's the same with every Sunday, but in particular, this text, as it gives us a vision into your heart and into what you see your church being. I pray that we would allow it to change us, to change our minds, to challenge deeply held convictions even. Preferences. Whatever the case may be, I ask that that rock of your word would be strong and we would embrace its energy and its changing force in our lives. And I pray these things in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. So, if you've been with us for the last several weeks, we are studying this passage with great intensity. One of the reasons I chose the book of Hebrews first because this text and I'll say it over and over for the last several years has become so important to me personally in understanding what a healthy church looks like and it helps clarify some of how we're supposed to interrelate to each other and it fills in the gaps I think of what other commands if you just leave them on their own take them out of context maybe you may not see the full picture. So I want to remind us every week that we're in this study, this emphasis on these few verses, that we're essentially asking a question of the author. And we're, as I said last week, demanding answers or demanding clarity. We're essentially asking the author, okay, author of Hebrews, you've told us, exhort one another every day. So, author of Hebrews, how are we going to do that? So we're coming at it with the text of Scripture, both in Hebrews and outside, and answering the question, how ought we to exhort one another every day? Because this is a command of Scripture. You should feel the weight and the power as if God were standing in front of your face right now and saying, you, believer, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. That's obviously how we should feel about every command in Scripture, but this one in particular—the intensity connected to it in the text itself—exhort one another. So how? So I hope that you felt the significance of this text, and have, I have tried to do a good job of communicating the significance over the last several weeks. More than that, though, I hope that we all have seen our hearts be inspired to do what this text commands. So in the first instance of it, we looked at the war against unbelief, taking this text in its greater context. This is a war against unbelief. Be careful, take care so that an unbelieving heart doesn't form in any of you. This is a war, not a battle, not an isolated incident, not a tactical strike against unbelief, but a war. And everyone in this room from the youngest of us to the oldest, kids, children, to the adults, to the middle aged to the older, this is your war. If you claim Jesus as Lord, this war is for you and you must make war against unbelief in your life. So that was the first week that we touched on this passage. And the next week it was Resurrection Sunday or Easter And I hope that as we discuss the resurrection, the reality sunk into your hearts more than you maybe have ever felt or just more and more intensifying that feeling of severity that you will stand before Jesus one day, a 100% chance that you will stand before him and answer for your life. He will judge all flesh. And if you're not in him, it's not going to go well for you at all. You have the opportunity, young people, to set the example for us. As we get older, and I know I'm not very old, but I feel old, feeling more and more old. As I do more things, but the more concerns come into your life, you've got job, you've got boss, you've got kids, you've got mortgages, insurance policies. The more these things crowd into your life, the less the significance of that day where you stand before Jesus can be felt. These are the thorns that Jesus talks about as the word of God is planted into the soil. The thorns come up the cares of this world and choke out the word. So you young people in this room, you have the opportunity without the mortgage, without the insurance policy, without the boss, without the job, without the kids, you have the opportunity to settle this in your heart today. Jesus is Lord and I will stand before him. And to be an example for us of how that can be central in a person's life. And last week we talked about Prayer. Exhort one another through prayer. And I hope that my pleading with you to make prayer a priority in your life, and as a group of believers, not just you individually, but the whole church, seeing Jesus as our example, and seeing prayer as the means through which the Spirit makes sure that your brothers and sisters' faith does not fail, I hope this has begun to transform your prayer life. Even Jesus Himself prayed this way. When the enemy asked for Peter, do you remember the story? Jesus says to Peter, oh, Peter, or Simon, Simon, the enemy, Satan, has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And we might say to him, hey, Jesus, couldn't you just say no? Couldn't you just tell the enemy no, so I won't be sifted like wheat And Jesus says, well, I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail and that when you return again, he's almost telling him, hey, it's going to go badly when the enemy tries to sift you like wheat, you're going to fail. But when you return again, you'll be able to encourage your brothers. So if Jesus prays that way for his disciples, that's how we ought to pray that our faith collectively will not fail. Also, and I meant to mention this last week, we just ran out of time. It's becoming a theme. Um, running out of time. So, Jesus, you know, we, we used to wear these bracelets, right? At least when I was growing up. WWJD, what would Jesus do? And it was really trendy. But I don't know if we want to do that because sometimes Jesus loses it. Right. If you remember the story twice in John's account, he goes to the temple and he sees them exchanging money for the sacrifice. And he makes a whip of cords, turns tables over, makes a huge mess and drives them all out. And this is how he explains himself. My house will be called or the ha- my father's house will be called a house of prayer. So the only point where we see Jesus lose it is because prayer is not being emphasized in the right way. And the Jews might be able to very legitimately say to Jesus, Hey, you even told us if the way was too far for us to liquidate our stuff, bring it to Jerusalem, the place where you set your name, and then buy for yourselves what you need. So there was a legitimate reason for there to be money changers. But the emphasis had gotten so far on that end that there wasn't the prayer. He couldn't look at the temple and say, this is the house of prayer. And I know this isn't the temple, right? We're not in the first century. We're not under the old covenant. But Jesus, I think, would say to all of us, my house will be called a house of prayer. And that's the charge to us. And if we are to endure, the one who endures to the end will be saved, Jesus says multiple times. If we are to endure, if our faith will not fail, it will be through the prayers of your brothers and sisters. Now, just as a reminder, what is at stake here? The author has already introduced this theme. He's going to build on it as we get into the following chapters. God's rest. So, if you rewind a little bit into the cha- into chapter three, this is God's response to the unbelief of the is the. A nation of Israel when they refused to go into the promised land. And he says to them, therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. So the author of Hebrews in exhorting his hearers, he kind of sees us and the children of Israel on the precipice of entering the promised land in a similar state. We are in the last age. We await for the return of Christ. That's the next chapter. It's the end of all things. And as we wait His return, there's a similarity between us and the children of Israel as they are about to enter the promised land. And so the author of Hebrews messages to you is, Endure! Endure with patience that day that we wait for. And so what's at stake is, entering or not entering God's rest. And the point is, we want to be there with him. The place where God is, his end goal, the final Sabbath. The peace of God, shalom. We are all seeking that. We want to be where he is. And this isn't a sermon about heaven or the world to come or the new creation. But as we spoke about on Resurrection Sunday, none of this matters unless Jesus is alive. And because he is alive, then what he said is going to happen is going to happen. The reason it matters most for your future is that Jesus is alive and he's been appointed the judge of all things, according to Paul in Acts 17. And what awaits you is either life eternal or judgment eternal. Rest eternal or torment Eternal. Exhorting one another is to make sure we endure to the end. The one who endures to the end will be saved. That's Jesus. And that makes me uncomfortable even to say that. To even say the phrase that the Bible says here, leading you to fall away from the living God, that makes me uncomfortable because of what I believe about the security of the believer. And let me just say again, I want to emphasize John 6. All who the father has given to the son will never be lost. He doesn't lose what he saves. But as I've said multiple times, you can deceive yourself. And sin is what enables you to do that. take care lest there be in any one of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And then he restates himself, exhort one another every day as long as it is called to get today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We lie to ourselves and we believe the lies of the enemy and we convince ourselves, we lull ourselves to sleep and we let ourselves be lulled to sleep and we think we're okay. There is no knowledge of the Most High. He's okay with this. And it lets us think that our hearts have been changed and that we are in love with him and we're not. And so exhorting one another, this holy cattle prodding, as I've said last week, this holy coaching, This the, the literal idea is that we're beside calling. We are standing beside each other, calling each other up to the standard of holiness in Christ. Come on! That that is in the life of your brothers and sisters and in your own life. You're doing that and they're doing that, enabling you to endure. We can only do this if we lay the foundation here where the author introduces these important warnings. Kids, you have the longest way to go of any of us. Enduring to the end for you has a lot more years attached to it than it does for us. And so this is important to settle in your heart. Today, that you will make this a priority in your life. To exhort one another, so that you won't be led astray by the deceitfulness of sin. So, with all that said, today we're focusing on this idea that it means everyone and anyone when he says exhort one another what's contained in that word is a lot of information but what's almost more important is that what it is what it doesn't say okay and we're gonna get to that the big idea is that this command is for anyone and everyone It's a very important thing to ask of the scriptures. What is it saying? That's the most important question. That's question number one. What is this text saying? But also, just a little bit less important is, what is it not saying? Because you can come to a text and you can think it's saying one thing, but you're not listening and you take it to mean something it's not saying. And honestly, I think when we hear this command, this is probably what is happening in your minds and in your hearts when you hear it. Because it's what's hap- it, it is what happened in my heart and mind for years before I started really trying to understand what this meant. When we read, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, here's what I think we hear in our hearts. Check in on your Christian friends to make sure they're okay. Have an accountability group that meets once a week. Text Bible verses to your close friends. Find a theology or culture debate to get into on social media. Or even raise well-behaved kids and have a Bible study with your spouse. And I'm not saying that any of those are a bad idea. Most of them are very good ideas and very profitable when done rightly. But the command here is much more broad, much more invasive, much more intense. Intense. To say it in a longer way, here's my kind of thesis of what this entire statement means. Every one of you, make it a daily practice to prod, spur, coach, and plead with one another. Everyone possible among you so that none of you may be hardened through sin and fall away from the living God. Read that again. Every one of you, Make it a daily practice to prod, spur, coach, and plead with one another and everyone possible among you so that none of you may be hardened through sin to fall away from the living God. Anyone and everyone. Why is this important? Why is this idea of anyone and everyone so important? First, Because this indicates it's also for you. Your actions in seeking to exhort your brothers and sisters is part of what God uses to make sure you endure. It's not just what you offer to your brothers and sisters to help them endure. In the act of exhorting one another daily, that helps you endure to the end. You may be looking at your life and thinking, well, I don't really have anyone in my life who's exhorting me this way. I don't have any kind of intense Christian friends like this who spur me on to love and to good works. I don't have anyone who's stirring me up to love and to good works. Begin being this, pick somebody. And as you begin to try to stir them up for love and to good works, you'll see that that effect starts happening in your life as well. Just a few discussion points as we try to unpack what this means, anyone and everyone. You may think, as I've explained this task of exhorting one another every day, you may think, well, I'm not qualified. I don't understand enough theology. I may not even be able to articulate the gospel in an intelligent way. I have all these sins in my own life. Maybe I, I struggle with this or that. I can't be an exhorter. How can I exhort someone to endure when I'm not even sure if I'm enduring? Well, regardless of how qualified or suited you feel to exhort someone, you may be the very person that the Lord will use to prevent someone else from being hardened by sin. Here's a story to kind of hang your hat on, on this truth. Balaam needed to listen to a donkey. And he did, and it saved his life. If you remember the story, the king wants to get Balaam, a prophet, to come and curse Israel. Right? Right? And he prays and God says, no, don't go with him. And, and he comes back and says, hey, please, I need you to come curse Israel. And finally, God says, all right, fine, you can go. And then an angel of the Lord meets Balaam in his path with the sword drawn. And the donkey sees it and says, I'm not going to continue going because if Balaam's going to die. We're all going to die. Right? And so he turns aside. It actually ends up hurting Balaam. He crushes his foot because he's trying to get his donkey to go. And what Balaam needed to do was listen to a donkey. So if you feel even just a little bit more qualified than a donkey, you might spare someone's life. And it is that serious. Hey, don't go that way. Warning. Caution. So if if you're just any measure above the ability or intellect or wisdom of a donkey, it's your job. So let this be a motivation. Do you know the truth that your brother or sister needs to hear? You probably do. The truth isn't difficult. This is how God explains himself. He says, I have made known to you what I expect of you. It's not simple. Don't say in your hearts who will ascend to heaven to get the word of God for us or who will go across the sea to get it for us. The word is near you in your mouth and in your hearts. It's not hard. You know the truth. Do you possess the ability to bless or encourage someone? And I would argue from the youngest among us to the oldest, you have the innate ability to encourage someone. And guess what? Everyone needs encouragement. If you're breathing, you need encouragement. Also, if you're breathing, you know how to encourage. <clears throat> also, this is the next discussion point. You might have a problem with the messenger. Anyone? Anyone ever tried to exhort you or, or show you the right path or tell you you were on the wrong path and then you had a problem with how they did it or who they were? Right? Is it just me? All right. This is very important. And this hopefully this kind of breaks the ice for us as a church here at North Star. Be open to hearing from God from any source. Here's another story to hang your hat on. This is in Second Samuel. If you would turn with me there. 2 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 5. This, for context, David's son Absalom has basically formed a coup in Jerusalem, and David has fled Jerusalem. David's the rightful king, Absalom's trying to take his place, and David flees with his family. So, on the road, this is what happens. As David is running away, essentially for his life. And when King David came to Barum, or however you say it, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David, and at all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men, were on his right and on his left. And Shimei said. As he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man, the Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given you given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. See, this evil is on you for you are a man of blood. And if you know the story, David didn't kill Saul. In fact, he wept when he figured out that Saul had died. He spared his life multiple times. Then Abishai, the son of Zerui, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over there and take off his head. But the king said, and this this is the point I'm reading you the story. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zerui? If he is cursing if he is cursing me because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told it to him. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and the Lord will repay me with good For his cursing today. So, if you have a brother or sister come into your life and you may not like them, okay? You're told to, you're commanded to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you may exert that by the Spirit to love them, but you just may not like a few of them, right? And they come into your life and they say, hey, here's where I think you're off. Here's where I think you need to change. This is a dangerous road you're on if they're not cursing you and throwing stones at you and saying, may God visit this bloodshed on you, then you have all the more reason to listen to them. David's humility in this place shows us how we should respond because we don't know what the Lord's doing, how he's working in that brother or sister's life who's come to us and shared this thing. We might respond saying, you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. And David could have said the same thing. I didn't kill Saul. I mourned for him. I spared his life multiple times and I've shown favor to the son of Jonathan, the whole household of Jonathan. So it was completely off, but David's response is, the Lord may be involved in this. It may be a trial that he wants me to go through, even receiving this unjust cursing. So don't respond poorly when a brother or sister comes into your life and challenges you on a point. And this is so difficult. But it is what we should do. This should promote humility in our lives as we listen to our brothers and sisters. Next discussion point on this. I want to dispel a myth that uh, reigns supreme in much of evangelical life. And that is what I would call the life stage myth. This is how it's talked about. Well, I'm just at a different place than they are, or they can't really relate to me. I've got kids, they don't have kids, or I don't have kids, they have kids, they're married, I'm single, I'm single, they're married, whatever it is. What your life stage is has now become a defining characteristic of who we are. And we think that anyone else who's not in that life stage can't can't speak meaningfully into our lives. Jesus claims, this is a verse that we read in our Sunday school lesson concerning Jesus. It's in the book of Hebrews. He is a high priest able to empathize with us. And it's not on the basis of him being the son of God. It's on the basis of him being human. The fact that he came and lived as a human, a first century man who didn't live past 30 or 33, didn't have kids, wasn't married, lived in Palestine. He says, I'm able to relate to you and empathize with you, not because of my omniscience, not because I know all things, but because I was human. I am human. I have partaken with humanity. So just get rid of that life stage myth. Everyone in this room is human, I hope, right? We're all human and we share in this humanity. So regardless of how old you are, or whatever life stage you're in, or whatever experiences you've had, your brothers and sisters in this room should be listened to. And that should promote humility in your heart. It really should. On the other hand, there's another thing I want to kind of dispel and try to make you stop thinking. When you say, oh, I, I know what you're dealing with. I understand. You really don't. And it is really the case that no one really knows what you're struggling with and the intensity of your struggle, the flavor of that struggle, except you and the Lord. And as the Spirit groans with you. So you don't know, really, what your brother or sister are dealing with. But here's the thing, you don't have to. If you know the truth, if you know who Jesus is and you know his promises, then you know what your brother or sister needs, regardless of what their struggles are. And that's not to say you shouldn't try to understand and try to see into their life. You really should, but you're never going to get to the point where you can honestly say, yeah, I know what you're going through. You don't. But again, you don't need to. You know the Lord, you know the truth. Also, the next discussion point, I want to I read for you before we get to this. I compiled, I had some help with other resources, I compiled a list of all of the one another passages in the New Testament. Right? And there might be others that aren't on this list, depending on your translation. I'm just going to read through each of them, okay? And my argument is, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, that this command to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, is kind of a summary, if you will, of all the one another commands in Scripture. So I'm going to read these passages, and hopefully let these wash over you, and help it transform the way you think, the way I think about The church and what your life should be about. Here they are. Love one another is commanded 13 different times in the New Testament. In a few places it says, love one another as I have loved you. Love one another with brotherly affection and love one another earnestly. We're told to greet one another. Five different times. And, it, and Paul says, with the kiss of love. And that doesn't mean we should literally be kissing each other. It means this is the embrace of love. We're commanded to be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We're commanded to be at peace with one another, live in harmony with one another, to not pass judgment on one another. Any longer to not speak evil against one another, do not grumble against one another, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So also you must forgive. You all you also ought to wash one another's feet symbol, uh, symbolic of how we're supposed to serve one another in humility. We're commanded to have the same care for one another, meaning we don't have favorites. We don't show a lot of care and concern for one particular group of people. We have the same concern for everyone. We're we're commanded through love to serve one another. We're commanded to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We're commanded to show hospitality to one another without grumbling As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. All of you. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Clothe clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. Instruct one another. Encourage one another. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Build one another up. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. And my argument is that the, this passage in Hebrews 3.13 and also how he ends out his word of exhortation in Hebrews 10 or as he begins to kind of summarize all of this. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then... Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works. Print out copies of this list of all the one another commands. I'll have it at the table back there for you to pick up if you want it. The big idea is let this be your life. Young people, you're at a stage of your life, you have stuff going on, and everyone in the world wants you to decide what your life is going to be about from here on out. Pick your career, pick your school, pick your spouse, get it all figured out before you're 21, hopefully. Right? And then we can get on our merry way and make sure you start paying into Social Security, right? Because we need that, right? So get a good job, pay taxes, and we'll be happy with you, right? There's a lot of pressure on you young people. But what I just read, if someone were to ask you, hey, what do you want to do with your life? This is what you should point to. Hey, Jesus has already told me what I'm supposed to do with my life. Love one another. Serve one another. Be humble towards one another. Exhort one another. This fills out, I believe, connects the dots for us for what our lives as Christians are supposed to be filled with. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things, your job and what you eat and what you drink and where you live. All those things will fill out and I'll take care of those because I need, know that you need when them. You focus on the kingdom and this is the kingdom. So you may ask, well, how do I start? First, you've got to think rightly about this. This ought to be the most important thought and the most important thing about your life is what God commands of you towards your brothers and sisters. Give yourself to this. Second, pray. I want to re emphasize this again. Many of us avoid this beginning in prayer. We have all these ideas about the things we'd like to do, the people we'd like to talk to, how we'd like to serve. Hopefully you have all these dreams, but most of us don't begin with prayer before we venture out. We don't follow Nehemiah's example of praying and confessing sin before we try to do something great for God. And I think the reason we don't do that is because we're afraid of the Lion of Judah. We're afraid if we give him full reign and carte blanche authority into our lives, what he'll do. He might make a mess. Like he did in the temple, because my house will be a house of prayer and there will be holiness. And I think we're afraid to not let that lion out of the cage. But if we're going to do anything by the power of the spirit, if we're going to succeed in the ways that matter, it must be through prayer. Prayer. Third, start simple. If, you're, if you really have bought into this idea, and I hope I've done a halfway decent job of explaining why it's important that you exhort your brothers and sisters and that this is a requirement and a command for all of us. If you've bought into this, think rightly about it, pray first. Third is start simple, right? And here's how you can start simple. I'm sorry and I forgive you. once you've submitted to the truth about this in your heart and mind, and once you've begun the habit of submitting your heart and your actions in this area through prayer, don't look past the very obvious and glaring things, right? The plank in your eye before you remove the speck in your brothers. To say, I'm sorry. Repent or take ownership and ask forgiveness and mean it. There may be conflict in the past between many of you in this room. Doesn't matter how long ago, do you think that we can be a healthy church that reaches people with the gospel of Jesus in the way that is meaningful? If, we'll, if we're filled with cliques or sides or groups that hang on to past hurts and will not forgive one another. Because in forgiveness, it feels like we're losing. Last week we talked about idols in relation to prayer and that God may not listen to you or answer your questions about anything else until he addresses the idols in your heart. And yes, past hurts can be an idol. What we hold on to, what we refuse to let go and let the forgiveness of Christ wash through us towards our brothers and sisters, that becomes an idol. And it begins to define us. And You must destroy it for it's too late. We can talk all we want to about moving spiritual experiences, things that we've seen on the mission field, maybe or in worship or even in this room, as you've heard me preach. But when you really see the power of God move and when we can really look and say there, God is moving is when relationships are reconciled and when forgiveness happens. How is this exhorting? How is it exhorting your brother and sister to say, I'm sorry and I forgive you? Because you're preaching the truth about God to yourself and your brother and sister when you say, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? And yes, I forgive you. That's the truth. You're beginning to agree with God together about His truth. God takes this very seriously Jesus says, if you don't forgive, neither will my Father in heaven forgive you. And if then statements make us feel very uncomfortable. If you don't forgive, neither will my Father in heaven forgive you. That's severe. You can begin exhorting your brothers and sisters and begin to be a part of this exhorting energy by forgiveness. Asking for forgiveness forgiveness yourself. Next, save your brother or sister with a word fitly spoken, right? So we've, we've started very small, very easy. I'm sorry, I forgive you. The next step is to know the truth and be able to say it in precise moments. This is how Solomon says it in Proverbs 25.11, 25, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. When you identify a moment or when someone opens up to you or someone says something that you can see leading them down a wrong path, to say one or two sentences that are at that key moment to direct their minds a little bit differently, that can save their life. Maybe literally, but most importantly, Spiritually. What it might sound like. What, what might this sound like? Um, you can be really obnoxious if you try to be the voice of God in everyone's life and you try to be everyone's Holy Spirit for them. It can really tend towards being obnoxious. But here's what it should sound like. It should sound less like you need to change and more like here, has how God, here is how God has changed me. This is what I know to be true. This is how he's affected me. Here's what I used to think, and this is what that resulted in, and here's how God changed me. Praise his name. Look at his mercy towards me. Please come this way. Instead of, here's what's wrong, here's what's wrong, here's what's wrong, here's what's wrong. You need to change. Get it together. Next. So this would be the fifth point of how we're to buy into this exhorting one another. Uh, Where there is smoke, there's usually fire. Where there's smoke, there's usually fire. You may look at your brothers and sisters, marriages, families, friends. and You may see a lot of smoke. And that usually means there's fire and things are not well. What we do here on a Sunday morning, we come together usually on our best behavior. And we put aside and sweep aside all the mess that is our lives. We put it in the closet and we present something pretty. Usually your front yard looks really nice, right? I know that's the case of mine. There's, There's nothing laying out on the front yard, there's no mess. Grass needs to grow. But the backyard, there's stuff out, you know, my grill, and there's always toys and stuff. And that's usually how our lives are. But we can see smoke. When you look around, you might see a lot of smoke. Every day, put on your gear, your firefighting gear, because you are being invited into a burning house as you're commanded to exhort your brothers and sisters in the faith. Go in, find the fire, and put it out. Offer your help. Offer your services. Offer encouragement. You're called to be a spiritual firefighter to help out your Christian brothers and sisters, regardless of how forlorn you may feel yourself. You may have so much on your own plate and in your own lives, you may say, how can I afford any time or resources or spiritual energy to serve as a spiritual firefighter for someone else's messes? And I guarantee you, as you go out and you seek to love your brothers and sisters this way, that it will begin to address issues in your life. So this is very important, and I'm completely okay with you blaming it on me, okay? So as you see smoke and you enter a house, metaphorically speaking, you say, hey, I see this going on. I don't know what's going on in your heart. I don't know where you are with the Lord, but I want to help. I want to love you. And if they get really offended, you can say, hey, pastor just told me to do this. So, you know, just if that causes awkward situations. Just blame it on me. And I'm completely okay with that. Because otherwise, some houses are going to burn down. Again, metaphorically speaking. And then we'll all look around and wonder, oh, If only we had known. If only they would have asked for help. It takes a ton of humility to ask for help, and most of us don't. We wait until it's too late, and we say, oh, how can we help you rebuild? So, next discussion point on this topic. What if it goes poorly? Here's the thing. It probably will. Right. It's probably going to go poorly. If you try to exhort one another, if you get in each other's faces and you're trying to be a holy cattle prod, a coach, a beside caller, a person who begs with your brother and sister to live in a way that honors the Lord, it's probably going to go badly. And how I know this is true is it doesn't even work often in the best of relationships. When your best friend comes to a point where they're comfortable enough to confront you on something, that usually doesn't go well. First, you can just blame me. Say, All right? It's pastor, sorry. Second, just know that it's going to go poorly at first, most likely, but it will result in great dividends later on as the Spirit works through the truth that you relay. Third, avoid unnecessary hurt by being Christ-centered, joy-driven, and hope-filled. If it's because you feel personally hurt or because you feel inconvenienced by the troubles going on in someone else's life, and you approach them and say, hey, it'd be really nice if you could figure this out. Here's what you need to do. That's really not going to go well. But if you say, hey, I love you. I care about you. And my joy is tied up in a mysterious way in Christ with your joy. When you are suffering, I suffer. And I want to help you. Tell me what I need to know. And it may sound awkward to speak that way. But it's worthwhile. Lastly, be able to articulate the gospel in around two minutes or less. I know that's very, very specific, but here's what I mean. When someone starts venting, right, the airing of the grievances, right, when we when we just which happens all the time, right, whether you're at work or at uh, any kind of store, people air grievances, things that are going on with them. This is just an example. Be able to take the gospel, the truth about Jesus, and apply it into that situation, and say, well, because I believe Jesus is going to come and heal our hurts, here's how I think about that when it happens in my life. Because I believe Jesus is king, here's how I think about current rulers. Right? You can relate it to everything. Just be able to very simply connect what you're dealing with, what's being spoken of, what someone is telling you with the gospel. Everyone can do this. My friend told me a story about his co-workers who often complain about their spouses, right? Does anyone hear that type of talk frequently, complaining about your spouses? And he said, well, in, I'm a Christian, and because of that, I believe that Jesus is giving us a picture into the gospel with giving us marriage, And so he forgives us and heals us and washes us with the water of the word. So I try to be, because of his example, really patient with my wife and realize that she's been put in my life to change me as well. That was less than 20 seconds, but you essentially presented the gospel. And you can do this, and and I would argue that Christians need to hear that type of talk more than those outside. So with that, I just want to exhort you to give yourself to this. It's hard. It's going to be awkward. It may go poorly at first, but this is your task. This is what he's given to you. And all those one another commands I've given you, this is for you. From the young among us to the old, this is your task. Let's pray. Father, I ask that we would obey We would see how important this is we would listen to you when you give us serious commands I pray that we would look around at our brothers and sisters in this room and realize that we've been given to each other and ask that we would walk with holy motivation to be this type of spiritual firefighter in each other's lives And I pray that we would be humble to receive that spirit-filled criticism, realizing that it's probably you working through them to exhort us so that we will endure. Give us those humble hearts that we need. Please exalt Jesus in our lives so that we can do so out of love for Him and not because we feel obligated in a depressing or sad sense of the word, but because we love Jesus and we want him to be worshiped and we want to be there in your presence and we want our brothers and sisters to be there with us. Help us see our world that way. And I pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.